for once again we do praise you, and we offer to you a portion of what you have given us. We pray that you would take this, that you would bless it, you would cause it to overflow. Use it as a means, Lord, to building your kingdom, that the glory of Christ may fill the earth. In his name we ask. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the scripture. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 104, and I'm reading just starting in the middle of verse 2 and reading through verse 4. Last week we read the entire psalm. We're just going to focus on a couple of verses this morning. I'm also reading from the New American Standard Version this morning. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's Word. Stretching out the heavens like a tent curtain, he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King and Creator of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would now sweeten this word in our hearts and our lives, that we might know you better, that we might know ourselves better, that we might better know the world that you have made so that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life, praying in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, this is going to be a little bit of a different sermon. Um, I will admit, I probably wouldn't preach this sermon just anywhere. I certainly wouldn't preach this sermon if it was the first time I was preaching in a congregation that didn't know me, but it is a sermon that I would preach among friends, and that you are. This is really a sequel to last week's sermon where we looked at God's glory and God's generosity in the wonderful world that he has made. Let me ask you a question. The psalmist says in Psalm 78, may he rule from sea to sea. What's that mean? If the psalmist lived in the United States, it would be pretty obvious, right? Atlantic to Pacific, as we sing from sea to shining sea. The problem is the psalmist didn't live in the United States. Well, if you know anything about the geography of Israel, maybe he meant from the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea. But that's really a pretty small piece of real estate. It goes from like Lakeland to Melbourne. And the point of the psalmist is, may the Lord reign absolutely everywhere. Well, if he wanted to say, may the Lord reign absolutely everywhere, why did he say from sea to sea? It presumes a certain picture of the world. One that we don't share with the ancient Israelite psalmist. Or have you ever thought about the Ten Commandments? When God says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, 
or on the earth beneath or the waters below. Have you ever stopped to ask, what are those waters below? And what's down there that we might make an image of? There are a lot of pictures of the world in the Bible from an ancient world that just don't register with us. Use your mind's eye for a moment and picture planet Earth. Can you do that? Picture planet Earth. Now, our images might vary, but on the whole, we probably see a globe. And that globe we see going around the sun. And around the globe of the Earth, we see a little globe called the moon. This is kind of what we picture in our mind's eye when we picture planet Earth. Now, if I were to be able to go back to ancient Israel and say to anybody walking around in Jerusalem, in your mind's eye, picture planet Earth, the first thing they would have said to me is, what on earth is a planet? The Bible refers to the sun and the moon and the stars, but there are no planets in the Bible. Now, Jude in the New Testament does refer to wandering stars. Because they did know that there was a difference between Jupiter and Venus and Mars and the other stars. They were observant. They could tell that some of these stars up there didn't quite track with all the other stars. So they called them wandering stars, but they still called them what? Stars. They didn't call them planets. Now, after we got over that discussion, uh, then I would say, now let's get back to the point Picture in your mind's eye the earth. This is what they would say. Well, I see a flat disk. And that disk is floating on water. And the water rises at one end and it rises at the other end. And then above that disk, there's this beautiful solid blue dome. And inside that dome, uh, there are the sun and the moon and the stars And above that dome are the celestial waters from which we get our rain. And by the way, that that disc floating on the water, who wants to live on a houseboat? So that disc is anchored in what the Bible calls the pillars of the earth or the foundations of the earth. And they would say to me then, isn't that a beautiful picture of God's world? And I would say, yes, it is. Now, a good number of years ago, there was a book written, and the book was entitled Through New Eyes, Developing a Biblical Worldview. Was that what it was called? That doesn't sound right. Yeah, that's what it was called, Developing a Biblical... No, 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 I knew it didn't sound right. Developing a Biblical View of the World which is not a biblical worldview, related but different. Biblical worldview asks questions like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? Those are all important questions, but that book raised a different question. It was developing a biblical view of the world, and that's what we're going to start to do this morning. We want to look through ancient eyes at the world to see a biblical view of the world, 
Not that a modern view is unbiblical. What I mean by biblical is the way the Bible presents the world. Because it's not one that we're naturally going to get living in the 21st century in the Western developed scientific technological world. And if we don't have a biblical view of the world, it's going to be much harder to have a biblical worldview. As we'll see, the two are related. What we want to do is begin to take a look at how the Bible itself views the world. Now, first of all, two principles and then six reasons. You with me? How many principles? How many reasons? Okay, let's just look at a couple of principles, just some general principles, and then we're going to look at six reasons, and those six reasons are going to come right out of the text that we have read. Here's our first principle in developing a biblical view of the world. The Bible's view of the world is, by and large, metaphorical, not literal. Metaphorical, not literal. Let's look at a couple of things here. First of all, God revealed himself to ancient Israel with a lot of figurative language. One of the best known lines from the Old Testament comes from a psalm that starts with two and also has a three in it. The Lord is my, not literally, metaphorically, God is our shepherd. Psalm 46, God is our refuge. Psalm 87, the Lord God is sun, S-U-N, and shield. Or you can think of all that language that speaks of God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. Pretty tough to do since God doesn't have a body like we do. The eyes of the Lord looking out through the earth. The arm of the Lord not being too short to save us. I'm not saying that everything in the Bible that the Bible says about God is metaphorical or figurative. When the Bible says God is love, that's not metaphorical. That's literal language. But a lot of what God reveals to us through the scriptures is figurative and it's not literal. We're going to come back and talk about that a bit more. God has revealed himself to us, to ancient Israel, with figurative language. But also, God has revealed his people to his people through literal language. Not only does God tell us about himself with figures of speech, but he tells us a lot about us with figures of speech. He calls us his children. Now, we're not God's children in the way that Will, Evan, Mark Jr., and Annie are my children. He calls us his bride. He calls us his sheep. We're not literally sheep. You see, God not only reveals a lot about who he is, but he also reveals a lot about who we are through figurative language. And this is kind of tough for those of us, especially who are on the technological, engineering, science kind of side of it. Uh, You know, when when I have students that come to seminary, they're in grad school. 
They've been through 12 years of um, uh, uh, basic education. They've been through four years of... Gra- Some of them have a very difficult time writing. Because they, are, they went through four years of discipline that didn't require them to write 50-page papers. They weren't in English Lit or in uh, history or in political science. They were in computer technology or they were in engineering. And uh, we, we tend to approach the world in certain ways. And our culture as a whole tends not to approach the world through, through poetry through figurative speech, through metaphorical language, because our worldview is so dominated by a scientific approach uh, to the world. God's revealed himself. God's revealed us through figurative language. God's also revealed his creation to ancient Israel through a lot of figurative language. Remember that text in Malachi when the prophet was teaching people about tithing? And he said, test me in this and see if I will not open the windows of heaven. I didn't know heaven had any windows in it. What are windows doing in heaven? And see if I will not pour out a blessing. Strange language to us makes perfect sense to the ancient Israelite with his view of the world, especially as he is a farmer. Or think of the flood story. At the end of the flood story, it says, Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heaven had been closed and the rain had stopped falling. Notice that. When when God flooded the world, water came from two places. It came through the windows of heaven and it came from the springs of the great deep. Because remember, in this ancient view, we only have two places from which we can get water. The water below and the water above. That's why you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heavens above, the earth beneath, or the... It's starting to maybe cohere and make a little bit of sense as to why we find this kind of language. Now, one other thing, just so that you stop being quite so nervous... God has not only revealed himself and his people and his creation through figurative language, but listen, God has revealed his truth through figurative language. I got to make that point because I know that some of you are thinking he thinks there's stuff in the Bible that's not literal. That means he doesn't think it's true. Because don't we say, that's literally true. As opposed, as I guess what we're trying to say is, that's really, really true and it's certainly not false. Because if it's not literally true, it must be, that's false. God can communicate truth through literal language and God can create can communicate truth through figurative language. For example, John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Is Jesus literally a vine? No. Are you literally branches? No. Is Jesus truly the vine? And are you truly branches? So that without being connected to him, 
You have no hope of producing fruit in this life or in the life to come. See, when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, he's telling you the truth. He's just telling you the truth through figurative language. Jesus says, I am the door. Not literally. Jesus says, as we celebrated the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. Now, maybe some of you have come from a Roman Catholic background. Maybe some of you are visiting and you are Roman Catholic. This is why where Protestants and Roman Catholics don't see eye to eye, do we? See, Roman Catholics say, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. So there's the miracle of transubstantiation. The, the bread and the wine actually literally become the body and blood of Christ because that's what the Bible says. And we say, yeah, that is what the Bible says, and it is communicating truth, but we shouldn't understand that. What's the L word? We shouldn't understand that literally. It's the body and blood through the spiritual ministry of the Holy Spirit, not in a physical, literal way. And so you're comfortable, uh, those of you, again, if somebody is Catholic, you're on the other side of this equation at this point, but that's okay. Uh, But those of you who are Protestant, you're comfortable saying that's true. Jesus, it is his body, it is his blood, it's just not literally true. So I have to really make that point because it's so deeply ingrained that that literal is true and metaphorical is something other than true that God communicates his truth to us through figurative language. So that's the first principle. The first principle is that God communicates a lot of truth to us about himself, about ourselves, and about the world that he has made, and he communicates it through metaphorical language. Not everything in the Bible is metaphorical, uh, but God does use a lot of metaphor. Here's our second principle, and it's just a different way of saying the same thing, but it's kind of taking it out of literary categories and putting it into kind of more philosophical categories. When God communicates to us, when, when, we, when we get a picture of the, of the world through ancient eyes, that picture is theological, it is not scientific. The picture of the world that the Bible gives us is a theological picture, it is not a modern scientific picture. And we will be forever butting heads if we continue to try to mesh the pictures in the Bible with the pictures that we get by looking at the universe through a telescope. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, Somebody tell me what this is. Bulletin. What if I were to say to you, no, it's not. It's paper. Who's right? But when you say it's a bulletin, what question are you answering? What's its purpose? What's its function? When I say it's paper, what question am I answering? What's it made out of? Who's true? They're both true. This is what we call complementary truth, right? 
two truths. We're, we're both talking about the exact same reality, aren't we? But you're answering one kind of question, I'm answering another kind of question. And simply put, that's my understanding of how modern science and theology interface. God has given us the Bible to answer some kinds of questions. Like who and why. God has given us science to answer other kinds of questions like when and how. They're going to be complementary truths When theology is done well and when science is done well, there's no conflict, there's complementary truth because, you see, the scientist and the theologian are both talking about the exact same reality, aren't they? They're talking about the world that God has made. But they're answering different kinds of questions. No wonder they're saying pretty different things, like paper and a bulletin. Well, let me give you an example from the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that God made, this is the kind of wooden language, God made the two big lights. Interesting, it doesn't say God made the sun and the moon. It calls them the two big lights. Now, from a scientific point of view, and I'm no scientist, but from a scientific point of view, is it the case that the sun and the moon are the two big lights up in the sky? No. The sun is a mediocre star. There are bigger ones, there are smaller ones. And uh, the moon, wow, it's really, really small. Uh, Doesn't compare to, say, Saturn in size. But when you go out during the day... Or when you go out at sunset, just from your common knowledge of the world that God has made, isn't it the case that the sun is the biggest one up there and the moon's the second biggest? Just from the way that ordinary human beings view the world, the sun is the biggest and the moon is the second biggest. By the way, the Bible says two big lights. But as we know, the moon is not a light like the sun is a light, is it? The sun is a fusion-burning engine that produces photons. Moon doesn't do that at all. Moon's a mirror. It just kind of reflects. But let me ask you this. If you lose your keys some night, would you rather lose your keys on a cloudy, moonless night or on a clear, moon-filled night? Well, obviously the latter. Why? Because the moon is a light. Not from a scientific point of view, but from an ordinary human being kind of view. And that's the way God reveals himself in Scripture. Not with modern scientific precision, but with ordinary language. Let me tell you what uh, my friend John Calvin, you guys know John? This is what John Calvin says about this thing with the two big lights. Listen, the Holy Spirit had no intention to teach astronomy. See, Calvin got it, that when God is revealing himself in Scripture, he is not revealing uh, things to us scientifically, but theologically. Calvin goes on to say, and in proposing instruction meant to be common to the simplest and most uneducated persons, God made use by Moses and the other prophets of most popular language. Now listen to this, 
the Holy Spirit would rather speak childishly than unintelligibly. If God had revealed to ancient Israel uh, a world that you and I know because of people like Galileo and Copernicus, they would have scratched their heads and said, what on earth is he talking about? It would have been like God saying to somebody, uh, hey, um, in a couple of years, everybody is going to be using smartphones. Some of them are going to be using iPhones, but the really smart ones are going to be using Android phones. They, first of all, they wouldn't have any idea what a phone was. Uh, they wouldn't know what the word smart meant in that application. They would, I what? And who? Uh, God revealed himself to the ancients in their world. Not in our world. And their world was not a modern scientific world. I love it. Calvin got it. God would rather speak childishly, that is, so that they get it, than unintelligibly. Uh, Take no offense. My father was a cabinet maker. My father was not college educated. But I remember him saying to me once as I was starting to think about preaching, he said this, Mark, uh, preach to the six-year-olds and most of the adults will probably get it also. God would rather speak childishly than unintelligibly. I don't pretend to be this high philosophical, theological, sophisticated kind of preacher. Uh, I'm here for you, and I want to preach in a way that you get it, not in a way that my colleagues in the Society of Biblical Literature get. Uh, God would rather communicate childishly than unintelligibly. Let me give you another example. Remember that firmament that we talked about, that dome? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did King James call it a firmament? And why don't our modern translations call it a firmament? Why do they use words like expanse? When they're using words like expanse, they're taking away some of the dissonance that we feel between the theological picture in the Bible and the scientific picture that we understand. But they're eliminating from us God's picture of the world when they take away a good old word like firmament. Yea for the king on this one. (laughs) Now, why did the King James use the word firm, firm, firmament? I guess it's because somebody thought that thing up there was F-I-R-M. Well, the reason why the king used the word firmament is because he's looking at the Latin, which used a word that meant firm. And that's because Jerome in 400 was looking at the Greek, which used a word that meant firm. Because the Septuagint, the Greek translators of the Hebrew Scriptures, were reading the Hebrew Bible, and the word there, rakia, is a word that means, no wonder the king used the word firmament. Now, by the way, in the picture, it's got to be firm, because what's its job, its primary job? Well, what's the Bible say? Remember in the beginning it was all water, and God said, let me create a firmament to separate the water that is above the firmament from the water that is below. And if it's going to hold up water, what's it got to be? It's got to be firm. See, the picture starts to make sense. And that, by the way, is why that firmament has to have what in it that starts with W if we're going to get any rain down here on the earth. It's got to have wind, wind, 
What's the firmament have to have in it? Windows, yes. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I won't open the windows in the firmament and pour out a blessing. You're an ancient Israelite farmer. There is no irrigation. There's only one place for you to get water on your fields, and that's what? Rain. So you tell me what the quintessential blessing is for an ancient Israelite farmer. Rain. See if I won't open up the windows in the firmament and pour out a blessing. By the way, that's how God flooded the earth. He opened the windows and water came down. And then he opened up the uh, floodgates of the deep and the water came up until he closed the windows. And when he closed the windows, it stopped raining. Now, that's not very scientific, but it's beautiful when it's theologically accurate and we need it to understand God's world. Let's go back to our friend John, Calvin. This is what Calvin said about the firmament. Moses describes the special special use of this firmament, quote, to divide the waters from the waters, from which words arises a great difficulty. See, Calvin was saying, how do I square this language with the world that I live in? When I read that there's a firmament that separates water from water, what's he say? From arises a great difficulty. For it appears opposed to common sense and quite incredible that there should be waters above the heavens. He who would learn astronomy, let him go elsewhere. The Bible is not teaching us astronomy It is not giving us a scientific picture of the world, but it is giving us a beautiful theological picture of the world. You see, here's how most Christians in the United States and in the modern world live, how we look at the world. We look at the world like this, with one eye. And that eye only sees a modern scientific view of the world. God wants us to look at the world through ancient eyes. And when we do, we not only see a... See, I'm not telling you that the earth is flat. I'm not telling you that the earth is the center of the universe. We don't want to throw away a modern view of the world. We We want to enrich it by getting back at that old ancient view of the world. Galileo said it well and quite poetically when he said, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. So, two principles. Maybe I ought to stop here and just come back for the second point later on, but I'm not going to, I don't think. We'll just do it kind of quickly, I think. I don't know. I got to decide what to do because I smell that roast beef on your kitchen table. Um. Two principles. When God reveals himself, and especially his world, he does so through metaphorical language, and that language is given to teach us theology. It is not given to teach us modern science. Okay. When am I coming back? I'm coming back at the beginning of March, yes? Oh, let's just go quickly and finish, okay? Now, let's go to our text. Here are my six reasons. 
Let's just walk quickly. Just, and we're just looking at one little text in the Bible. First of all, the heavens as a tent. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Now, when it says like a tent, that's a simile, not a metaphor. A simile is a comparison using like and as, like a tent. A metaphor, no like or as, the Lord is my shepherd. But they're both figurative language. So when it says the, the heavens are like a tent, it's not saying they are a tent literally. They're just like a tent. By the way, a tent is made out of cloth and it's soft and supple, yes. But Genesis 1 says that the heavens aren't like a tent. They're a firmament, which is hard. Well, how can they be both hard and soft at the same time? Well, they can't be from a, unless we're going to get into some particle wave thing, I don't know. They're not going to be hardened. These are just two different metaphors that are being used. One is a dome metaphor. The other is a tent metaphor. The Bible's going to use rich and multiple metaphors to talk to us about God's world. The heavens as a tent. It's metaphorical. It's not scientific. The beams of his upper chambers. God set the beams of his upper chambers on the waters. Now notice they're upper chambers, right? The word is used for like building a little room on a roof in an ancient Israelite house. They're up there. Why are there beams on the waters of God's upper chambers? Can you start to see the picture? We got the firmament in place, right? Above the firmament is the water. If God's house is above that, sitting on the water, it's going to be like a houseboat rocking, isn't it? God needs to anchor His celestial, heavenly abode on the waters that are... But see, if you don't have this picture of the firmament and the waters above, and you read that God's, the beams of his upper chambers, the beams of God's heavenly house are on the waters, what's that all about? Makes perfect sense. We got our dome, we got our water, we got our house. The house has to be anchored. It's anchored on beams. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Certainly, this is not a scientific description of the world, but it is a beautiful theological picture, because if God is up there, he is over what? A, L, L, he's over all, you see. He's not trapped down here like we are momentarily. He's above everything. It's telling us something about who God is and what his reign is like because of where his palace is situated. Okay, the clouds as chariots. Well, today's not a good day for this because there are not many clouds out there. But let's imagine that this is a... This is a a storm day and storm clouds are coming. How do we describe that? We say, man, look at those cumulonimbus clouds that are on their way. There has been a, there's been a lot of evaporation. And as that water has evaporated up, it cools off. And when it cools off, what does it do? It condenses. And when it condenses and that condensed air reaches a saturation point, it precipitates out in the form of rain. See, that's why for the non-natives, that's why we get these summer thunderstorms. Of course, you don't care because you're up where it's cool when it's the summer, right? But we get this air coming from the east off the Atlantic and from the west off of the Gulf, and it collides over uh, here, and as it goes up when it collides, then it comes down. We got that one nailed in terms of a good, albeit simplistic, scientific description. 
Man, when the ancients saw cumulonimbus clouds coming, they didn't say, wow, look at those cumulonimbus clouds with the evaporation and the condensation and the precipitation. They said, here comes the Lord riding on his chariot to provide us the rain that we need. You see, they were theists. They actually believed that there was a God that intersected with their world. We, for all of our theology, tend to be practical atheists. When we see clouds, we just have a beautiful and true, as far as we know, scientific understanding, but we don't see God. And they did. And if we can recapture that ancient view of the world, maybe we'll begin to see God like they saw God in the world that they have made. And so you see, we're not just talking about principles of metaphorical and theological and not scientific. This makes a difference in terms of how you live in the world that God has made. The Lord's chariot. Now, the wings of the wind. I didn't know wind had any wings. I thought birds had wings. The wings of the wind. Similarly, in Psalm 18.10, it says that God mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. Now, in Psalm 104, God's soaring on the, on the chariot clouds. Here, he's soaring on the cherubim clouds. An interesting thing, when you look in Hebrew, the word for cherub is keruv. The word for chariot is rakuv. You might think I just said the same word. R-K-B-U-U, same letters, same vowels, just shuffle them. Chariot, rakuv, cherub, karuv. No wonder there's a play. What's God riding on? He's riding on his karuv, cherub. He's riding on his rakuv. Cherubim, (laughs) he's riding on the clouds. See, when they saw the clouds, they saw God, they saw angels, they saw, they saw, we need to read more of C.S. Lewis. We need to read more of um, Tolkien. There's a book that's called Christian Mythmakers. And why did Lewis write, why did he write myth? Why did Tolkien write myth? Now, be careful. I'm not saying there's any myth in the Bible. Recording. Did you hear me? I'm not saying there's any myth in the Bible. (laughs) They wrote myth to communicate truth. There is no, sorry, there is no literal Narnia. There is no literal Aslan. But man, does that story communicate truth to us. The wings of the wind. The more we can capture of this poetic, metaphorical, figurative, theological, the richer our view of God's world is going to be. Flames of fire, referring to lightning. Lightning looks like flames. Lightning can start fire like flames. 
Lightning is not literally a flame. Lightning is what's from a scientific point of view. I guess we got an imbalance in charges, and then we get one charge going, what is it, the positive going to the negative, and it can either go from ground up, or it can go from cloud down, or it can go from cloud to cloud, or one side of a cloud to the other side of a cloud. It's a discharge of electricity. The Bible sees it as flames of fire. Because there are those associations. It's not literally fire, but it sure can start them, as we know here in central Florida, right? One last one, the foundations of the earth. Lots of places talk about the foundations of the earth, the pillars of the earth. 1 Samuel 2.8, For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them He has set the world. Remember our text. This is why I chose the NASB, because it says it better than any other translation. He set the earth on its foundation so that it would not T-O-T-T-E-R. Why would the earth totter? Because it's floating on... Hey, I'm a poet. Why would the earth totter? Because it's floating on... You'll remember that one. Now... See, Psalm 104 makes perfect sense when we get this theological picture of the world. God has created a stable world in in which we can thrive. Not just survive, but thrive. But since it's on water, he has to put it on founding pillars. Now also notice, remember, God's house is set on what? Starts with W. Water, isn't it? Our house, the earth, is set on what? Starts with W. God had to put his house on, starts with B, beams. God put ours on pillars, foundations. You see, there's, it's like looking in the mirror, isn't it? When we begin to rightly see our world through the theological lens of the Bible, we also are seeing a reflection of God's world. Do you want to get a little glimpse of what heaven is like? Begin to see this world the way God has made it and the way he has described it in the Bible because this world is a reflection of another world, uh, the world toward which we are heading. Well, what's the point? I've already made a couple of the points along the way, but who is God? Who are we? What is God's world like? God has given us abundant answers to these questions in the Bible. And a lot of them are in ancient, metaphorical, theological, not literal, not modern scientific language. The problem is we're not those ancients. And so we need to do our best to come more and more to understand their world so that we can get the revelation that God is communicating to us about who He is and who we are and what His world is like. A biblical view of the world is really necessary to having a biblical worldview. Now, you can say it's paper, and that's true, or you can say... It's a bulletin, and that's true. If you insist on saying it's a bulletin and nothing else, or if you insist on saying it's paper and nothing else, you have an impoverished view of what this thing is. Rather than being forced into an either-or, 
aren't we richer by seeing it as both and? Let's pray. Father, we pray that through this...